If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 12-12. This is hour number one of the World According to Zig podcast for April 30th. 2017. This is the weekly show. It's really one of the very few places where you can get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from the conservative perspective in this crazy upside down world in which we now live. I am your host, John Ziegler. Happy to be with you. Hope you had a good week. We and the Ziegler household are still adjusting to being a four person family with a brand new baby named Diana, which of course means very little sleep. Uh, I've been suffering in the sleep department, but I have nothing to complain about in comparison to my wife. Uh, However, I I have definitely noticed uh, one thing that has happened somewhat organically uh, that my wife has also taken notice of, and that is that in order to deal with the added stress of a baby, a wife who's under enormous pressure, and a four and a half, almost five-year-old daughter, Grace... Yes, you remember Grace. Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? Who's going through the emotional roller coaster of having her monopoly on her parents' attention uh, be shattered. In order to deal with all this stress, I have definitely turned to alcohol. I'm not a drinker. I've never been a drinker my whole life. Never done drugs, really. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'll occasionally drink a glass of wine at a party or something like that, which we hardly ever go to now because we're parents. But uh, I've definitely noticed that the best way to deal with this kind of uh, tension is to just have a couple drinks. And it's amazing how much easier everything is. As long as it's kept in moderation, which, you know, I'm a disciplined person, so I'm pretty sure I'll be able to continue with that uh, MO. There's no, I highly recommend. It's absolutely the best way to deal with living in a house with three females all of whom can have a meltdown at any moment. In fact, usually do, considering one of them is an, is an infant who's just three weeks old. So I, I highly recommend uh, you know, little alcohol, 5 o'clock. I, I draw the line right there, nothing before 5, and, uh, and then I just smooth sailing till the end of the night. <laughs> so by the way, if you, if you notice anything different about my tweets or Facebook posts after 5 o'clock Pacific time, that's probably the explanation for it. Hey, Ziggler seems different now at night. 
That that would be the reason why. Uh, and I have absolutely no guilt about it whatsoever. You know, uh, there's a lot of work, obviously, that goes in, especially in this day and age, to uh, being a parent. But occasionally there are moments that make it all worthwhile uh, under the category of kids say the darndest things. Uh, Grace, who I've already mentioned, and, you know, she became... Uh, you know, well known to this audience, especially in the last appearance on uh, the old radio show, where she had the best explanation for what was really ending the radio show. Remember that? It's costing money. Right. So, so Grace is known to say things that are rather humorous and often <laughs> dead on honest. So, I was walking her to school, <clears throat> her preschool this week, as I do almost every single day, and for some reason, she mentioned that her new teacher, who she really likes, everyone always likes the new teacher, right? So she she really likes this new female teacher. And for some reason, she started talking about the fact that her new teacher not only teaches at her preschool, but in Grace's words, she also teaches at the wishing school. The wishing school. I'm like, what? what is the wishing school? And Grace says, yeah, the wishing school is for the kids who have really bad hair. And I'm like, wait a minute, hold on. This isn't what she's, she's not talking about what I think she's talking about, is she? Because I actually made the connection fairly quickly in my brain. And as it turned out after further investigation, yes, here's what Grace really meant. Grace meant that her teacher works for the Make-A-Wish Foundation And apparently, my guess is that while telling the kids that she works for the Make-A-Wish Foundation, she must have shown them photographs of some of the kids who get to Make-A-Wish with the Make-A-Wish Foundation, most of whom are like cancer patients who have lost their hair. And so Grace, in the sheltered world in which she lives, holy, spoiled little girl Batman, she thinks now that the worst thing that could happen to you as a child is to have really bad hair. And because you have really bad hair, that's why you're being granted a wish to go to Disneyland. That's the world in which my daughter lives. And even though that's kind of twisted, I did find it rather funny. When I shared the story with the teacher itself, she didn't find it as funny, oddly enough. I'm not quite sure why she didn't find it uh, so humorous. But those are the, the the brief shining moments that make all the work of being a parent worthwhile, which when you think about it in the big picture, not that great a deal, really. <laughs> not really that great a deal. Kind of a Trump-like deal, if you think about it. You, you get a, a very small little bit of uh, momentary pleasures for basically giving up everything in your entire life. That's the deal that you strike as a parent, and that's frankly the deal that we as conservatives have struck with Donald Trump, a deal that I have been against since day one. With that transition, obviously one of the major news story focuses this week was on the fact that we have now reached 100 days into the Trump administration. It's just flat out ridiculous. Yeah, it's just amazing. Uh, it's incredible, frankly, that we've, we've made it this far. It's been a remarkable 100 days. And it is my view that in the two things that happened yesterday, Trump's 100 days and the fact that Trump 
decided not to, as he announced many months ago that he was not going to, decided not to attend the White House Correspondents' Dinner, which was last night, the same night as was being marked as his 100th day. That in those two events, the 100-day anniversary and him bailing on the White House Correspondents' Dinner, I think that those two things are symbolic of who Trump really is. You can encapsulate all of Trump in those two. I'll, for instance, with the White House Correspondents' Dinner, I'll, I'll deal with that first because it's less involved. Here, Trump is the big, strong bully who hates the media and knocks the media constantly. The fake news, right? Which, you know, I'm the most anti-mainstream media person I know of, but it bothers the heck out of me that Trump uses people's understandable cynicism about the mainstream news media for only his own good. Not for the sake of truth, but only for what's good for him. He's never substantive about it. He just throws out the fake news thing. Unfortunately, it works very well because most of the conservative base has been taught slash brainwashed for a couple decades by people like myself, although I was a, had a small role in that, not to trust the news media. And Trump uses all that for himself, and here he is on a daily basis socking it to the news media, yet when given not just an opportunity, but an obligation, because this, this is a charity event, a major charity event that the President of the United States has gone to on a yearly basis for several good causes. So he gets the opportunity and obligation to actually stick it back to the media, to their faces, and he doesn't take it. He wimps out, runs away like the bully that he is. He's a fraud. It's all fake. It's a phony. If Donald Trump was anything close to what he thinks of himself as being, he would have, you wouldn't you would have been able to keep him away from the White House Correspondents' Dinner. In fact, he went to the White House Correspondents' Dinner when Obama was president, and many people think that was the reason why he ended up running, because he was so upset at being mocked by Obama over the whole birtherism thing that that was what planted the seed for him to run. And the most amazing thing is his cult, his cult 45, as I'll refer to them from here on out, Cult 45, they believe you every time, as Billy, <laughs> Billy D. Williams might have said. Cult 45, they believe him every time, has no effect on them. I mean, he, he can wimp out in the most dramatic way possible, like with the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and they think it's great because he held a rally for the cult in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And, and so there's really very little of any consequence for this. He gets exposed all the time as to who he really is. And his most devoted followers, especially those in Cult 45, it makes no difference to them because they are completely and totally invested in him being a godlike figure. Now, that's one element of what happened yesterday. The 100 days thing is also a perfect example of who Trump really is. Because Trump, during the campaign touted the 100-day marker constantly, continually, put out plans for what he would do in his first 100 days, very specific promises as to all the things he was going to change 
about the swamp in Washington and everything else that he duped people into believing he was going to do. And it was about 100 days. It wasn't like, here's what I'm going to do my first term or my first year. No, 100 days. That's what he said constantly. He constantly said it. Yet, now we get close to the 100-day marker, and Trump, <laughs> classic Trump, what he said in the past has no meaning, completely unhinged to any semblance of consistency. Hypocrisy is his best friend. Says, you know what? That's a ridiculous standard, that 100 days. 100 days, 100 schmays. That's ridiculous. By the way, I kind of agree with that. I've never really understood the media fascination. It feels almost caveman-like, doesn't it? The, the power of zero. You put a couple of zeros on anything. It's like, uh, ooh, one, zero, zero, oh, 100, 100, oh, 100. That's an Asian caveman, by the way. Uh, 100. Now it's got power. 98 days, we don't care. 107 days, we don't care. 153 days, we don't care. 100 days, because it's zero. Um, and there's the pa- this amazing power of zero. So I actually agree with him, if not for the fact that he hadn't made numerous <laughs> promises on a continual basis as to what he was going to do in order to get elected in those first 100 days. I will also say that the 100-day standard does have some significance not just because historically, you know, the media has always been fascinated by this 100-day double zero thing, but there is a very short honeymoon window once you've been elected, especially when you've been elected after losing the popular vote by 3 million votes and you know having your approval ratings be at best in the low 40s. So that 100-day marker is kind of, it's symbolic, but it's, there's also some reality behind it. You, you may not be at the end of your honeymoon, but you're pretty darn close. And historically, many of the most significant presidential achievements, especially legislatively, have been done either within that first 100 days or very close to within that 100 days. But making this classic Trump, it wasn't just a simple flip-flop. No, 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 no. This was at least a double, if not a triple flip-flop. And here's what I mean. During the campaign, 100 days meant everything. As we get close to 100 days, he realizes he hasn't done crap in comparison to what he promised, although don't tell the Colt 45 members that because they think he's changed the world, even though he hasn't done anything. But uh, so he goes back on that once we get close to the 100 days because he realizes it's going to look bad. The media is going to be able to torch him. But then here's the double flip-flop. This last week of the 100 days, there are numerous reports out that the White House was frantic to come up with any sort of last-minute achievement to get in underneath the 100-day bar. That's a double flip-flop. So he darn near pulled us out of NAFTA simply because it was within 100 days and he wanted to be able to tout that as an achievement until, (laughs) in classic Trump fashion... Apparently, they his advisors showed him a, a, a map of the people who would be hardest hit or hurt most by us pulling out of NAFTA, and they're all in Trump country. Then he says, 
well, I was going to pull out, but it turns out I really like the leaders of Canada and Mexico. I really like them a lot. So I'm just going to renegotiate. So he came this close. It was, it, was in, it was reported that we were pulling out an AFTA. But because he likes the leaders of Canada and Mexico, which, by the way, says a lot on another whole series of issues, but because he says he likes them, he's not going to pull out. And he's not going to do this publicity stunt to try to get a fake achievement within the 100-day marker. Boy, this doesn't set a bad precedent, by the way. So, so if you're a foreign leader, all, you, you now know for sure all you have to do to deal with Trump is get on television, ideally Fox News, ideally Fox and Friends. But if you get on, if you get on a, a television network that Trump is likely to watch or at least respects and say something nice about him, and then when you are in contact with him personally, compliment him on his golf game or his buildings or something like that, you get whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Forget about whether you're right or wrong on the issue or whether it's good or bad for America. No, you will get what you want, or you'll at least be able to stop him from doing something you didn't want him to do because he likes you. <laughs> I mean, that's not the way you run a, a forget about a, a You shouldn't run a company that way, but you damn sure shouldn't run the United States of America that way. But that's what we got. So in the last week, he tried to get us out of NAFTA. That didn't work. He, he even more desperately tried to get another vote on repealing Obamacare. That didn't work, and it's not going to. I, I've said many times on the Obamacare situation, he's trying to solve. Here's what Trump is like. He's a guy, a, a kid who's never done a Rubik's Cube before. Remember Rubik's Cube? He's never done the Rubik's Cube before, and he's being given a Rubik's Cube in the, in the case of healthcare that has no solution. Because they didn't put, you know, all the colors properly on on all the squares. All right. So that's Trump on healthcare. Give him a Rubik's Cube. He's never solved before. And this one doesn't have a solution. Good luck. Good luck. Because that there is no way to do this. This cannot be done. The math cannot be made to work. And it's and even though he says no one knew how complicated healthcare was, which is bullshit. The, the reality is this isn't that complex as to why it's not going to work. It really has to do mostly with the whole pre-existing condition situation. Either you're in favor of that remaining, which most people are because it sounds good. Oh, people shouldn't be forced to suffer because of pre-existing conditions, except very few Americans are smart enough to realize what that does to the entire healthcare and insurance industry. Because if that's the case, then effectively you can just wait until you get sick and then get insurance. So it fundamentally alters the entire system. So if you're in favor of that, like most people are, conservatives aren't going to go with you on that. And then if you remove that and you get conservatives, then Moderate Republicans are going to be screaming, running for the hills. Oh, no, we're going to get killed in 2018, which, by the way, might be true. So there's really no way to make that work. And then he put out a tax plan. And I will acknowledge it. it, You know, at first, I was even boondoggled by this tax plan. Because on paper, it looks really great. And then I realized 
That's literally all it is, is on one page of paper. <laughs> they, they, they had no tax plan at all until this week. They were completely unprepared, but because it was the 100 days, they figured, well, we got to put out something. I'll bet that there are Cult 45 members who actually think the tax plan passed this week. <laughs> they do. I'm sure they do. They're so stupid. So, and and the plan on on the face on its face looks great. I mean, I it's almost exactly what I would do. I mean, I'm a flat tax person, but I'm realistic enough to know that that's highly unlikely. But within the realm of reasonability, I thought that what was proposed in that one page. I mean, this wouldn't even have qualified for a high school term paper on, on you know, what you ought to do in the, in the realm of taxes. And here we have, you know, right below the 100-day mark, this is the President of the United States finally providing his tax plan. And so because it's so haphazard, because of what happened on health care, because it's Trump, I have very little, if any, faith that most, if any, of that tax plan is ever going to become law. And so in a weird way, it was actually more depressing than anything. After the initial euphoria of, wow, this is going to be awesome, I'm realizing, wait a minute, we just got duped again. This isn't going to happen. I mean, maybe some of it will. I'm hopeful some of it will. But the reality is the track record so far is terrible. A hundred days in, he's gotten, he couldn't even get a, let's be clear, folks. He couldn't even get the House of Representatives to vote on repealing Obamacare. Forget about repealing Obamacare. He could, if, if this was a baseball game, Trump promised a grand slam on Obamacare. Repeal and replace. Remember, instantaneous, first thing I'm going to do, repeal and, and replace. So he's like Babe Ruth calling his shot. With the bases loaded, I'm going to hit a grand slam, folks. Just you wait. He didn't get out of the batter's box. Okay? Getting a vote. In fact, that's actually being generous. He didn't make contact. He struck out without contact. And now he wants to have another shot at it. Well, as I've already explained, it's not going to work. So how do I evaluate his 100 days. I'm actually, as I always try to be, I'm a very fair guy. I'm a very open-minded and objective person. I want Trump to be successful in many ways, especially in the realm of taxes, for instance. And I will say that in some ways, the 100 days has gone better than I expected. And that might sound strange since I've been very critical of, of what he's done. But here's what I mean by that. When you look at it, the best decisions that Trump has made, and he's done this numerous times, the best decisions Trump has made in those 100 days is wimping out on some of his craziest ideas. I mean, he has wimped out on almost everything. Specifically, I mean, how many times during the campaign we're going to go after China. They're a currency manipulator. Wait till I get in there. We're going to renegotiate all the trade deals. They're killing us. They're killing us. It's terrible. Nothing. Now China's our best friend. He loves the Chinese leader because he's helping us in North Korea. Oh, by the way, uh, 
there's a good chance, according to Trump, very, very good chance we could be in a major, major military uh, fight with uh, North Korea. So we got that going for us, which is nice. <laughs> I, I remember that being part of the campaign. No, actually, I, I don't. I don't remember that at all being part of the campaign. Uh, but, but the reality is this, that Trump, thankfully, has wimped out. Now, why he has wimped out on a lot of this stuff, I'm not sure yet. I mean, the hopeful part is that he's rational enough to realize, one, that he's in over his head. I mean, this just week he said the job was a lot tougher than he expected. Really? Thanks, Donald. That's great. I mean, it's it's extraordinary that he admitted that. And some people thought that there was a strategic reason for that. And I disagree with that. I, I just I think that Donald Trump has multiple personalities. I really do. I think that he has, me, I don't know how many, but he has multiple personalities. And one of those personalities, and you can even tell it in his, the way his voice sounds and in his cadence, and I think that this statement he made to Reuters was consistent with that, that one of his voices, one of his personalities is actually fairly honest fairly introspective and probably scared out of his fucking mind. And he said that he didn't think it was going to be as difficult, that he enjoyed his previous life more, even though he likes working. And, and so if you think about it in those terms, the hopeful scenario here is that he's not bright, but he's smart enough to know when he doesn't know something. And that he's willing and able to take counsel, even if it's at the last second, like, hey, don't pull out an after you're going to screw your own people. And he goes, oh, OK. Now, this is possible. I, and you know, I always go back to The Apprentice. It's amazing to me of the many things that were remarkable during the campaign that old Apprentice episodes got like no attention during the presidential campaign. My wife and I used to watch the, the Apprentice all the time because back when Trump was harmless, I thought he was kind of funny. But even I, and this sounds so ridiculous in retrospect, I was frustrated watching The Apprentice because I didn't think he was smart enough to run a reality show properly. And I mean that sincerely. Watching Donald Trump in the boardroom try to make the decisions as to who to keep and who to fire in The Apprentice was exceedingly frustrating because it was like watching an infant, like an infant with several toys in front of them. And whichever shiny object caught his attention last, that's the one he went with. And the idea of that guy being in the White House scared the living crap out of me for good reason. Now, so far, the shiny object, whether who, I don't know who to give credit for this. I don't know. I, is it Rince Priebus or I guess it's not Steve Bannon anymore since he's been kind of demoted. But whoever, whoever is doing this, so far the person who has been the shiny object last has been somewhat rational. So none of the crazy stuff has really happened yet. And if that can continue, that's great. But here's the problem. It has to continue for at least four, maybe eight years. Now, 
I think you can get lucky for four years. I really do. You can't get lucky for eight years. No, there's, there's just, that's just not possible mathematically. You, you can get lucky in one term, but over two terms, the odds are eventually going to come back to haunt you. So I, I actually think that the best things that Trump has done are things that he hasn't done. The executive orders that the cult gives him so much credit for are mostly just a show. They're, they're basically meaningless. And they're frankly almost insulting. I mean, think about it this way. What if in your life, instead of actually doing things, you could just issue executive orders pretending that you did? Can you imagine? What if men use this tactic with their wives? <laughs> honey, honey, honey. All right, here's the deal. I am today signing an executive order that I am taking out the trash. And just to prove it, here it is on paper with my signature. And I'm going to show you, I'm going to show all the camera people here. This is the executive order. I am taking out the trash. Now, I'm not actually going to take out the trash. <laughs> but don't, don't, even, don't even look to see whether the trash has been taken out. You don't need to because I just signed an executive order saying that I am going to be taking out the trash. And um, similarly, I am going to sign an executive order banning infidelity among members of my administration. There will be no infidelity in this house at all, and I can prove it because there's my signature right there. So don't even worry about it. Don't even worry about it. It's all been taken care of. I mean, come on. It's just flat out ridiculous. The reality is that he... He's making it up as he goes and not. He has no idea. And the executive orders are just fun for him. They're just photo ops. And the cult laps it all up. They love it. They actually think these executive orders are doing something. Now, are they doing something maybe on the fringes? I guess it's possible. I, I mean, I, I'm not seeing any evidence of it, but I guess it's possible. And, and are they, you know... The, of course, the biggest issue is even if they are doing something, they can be immediately reversed as soon as he's out of office, whether that's four or eight years or whatever. Or hell, once he turns into a Democrat, he can reverse them himself. So I'm not impressed by the executive orders. To me, of all the many problems or, or issues related to the 100 days that bug me the most, it's the hypocrisy issue especially among us conservatives or people who used to call themselves conservatives. Folks, it's hard for me, other than Neil Gorsuch, and I will give Trump credit on Gorsuch, although it's, it's not as enthusiastic as it was because, one, we don't know for sure what Gorsuch is yet. All right? We're hopeful. We think Gorsuch is going to be good. I don't think he's going to be any Scalia. So it's already a downgrade, but that was inevitable. But let's just pretend Gorsuch is going to be great. Let's say he's going to be another Alito or whatever, which I'm hopeful for. We paid a very severe price for that, not just in the whole Trump thing, which was a massive price, but they had to get rid of the filibuster to get him in there. So what does that mean? That means that if this thing turns into the shit show that it electorally in 2018 and 2020 that it might, guess what? We are going to be in a 
whole heap load of trouble down the road because we're not going to be able to stop anybody. And what the left will do with that seat is going to be far more dramatic than what we get with Neil Gorsuch. And it might be permanent. But putting Gorsuch aside, other than Gorsuch, it's hard for me to point to anything that has happened or not happened so far in this administration that is different for sure than what would have occurred if Hillary Clinton had been president with a Republican House and a Republican Senate. I defy you. Tell me what would have been different for sure. I honestly can't think of anything. I cannot think of anything other than she probably would have been far more careful on the in the ethical realm because she was so vulnerable on the ethical realm. And keeping within that the whole concept of hypocrisy and you know the idea that if Hillary Clinton had done this or if Barack Obama had done this, my word, there are so many things that our side would have gone apeshit over if Clinton or Obama had done the same thing. Not just one or two things. I'm talking on a daily basis. On a daily basis, things happen that would have been week-long stories for the right-wing media if Hillary or if Obama had done them. To me, the most dramatic example, Mike Flynn was the National Security Advisor for the United States of America. A guy who is, the least of his problems is he's a conspiracy nut job, but so is our president. (laughs) But for all intents and purposes, a guy who was effectively a Russian agent is the national, was the national security advisor and then didn't get fired until 15 days after the president of the United States knew that he had lied to the vice president about the nature of his conversations with the Russian ambassador. Wow. I mean, if, if the opposite happened in a Hillary administration, the Sean Hannity's of the world would be having a, a daily countdown on, on their show every single night on the number of days uh, you know, since the Mike Flynn firing and still no one's gone to jail or whatever. I mean, that's how big this would be. And our side just pretends, oh, <laughs> yeah, that Mike Flynn thing, that wasn't, that wasn't. All right, let's move on. Let's, let's, let's move on. And, it, and the Flynn thing might still be part of a much larger picture. When you add in Paul Manafort and Carter Page and Roger Stone, we're still waiting on the left, I, I still believe is out of their minds. I mean, they, they already have Trump impeached and in jail uh, over that whole thing. And I, I, I'm nowhere near there. I'm somewhere in the middle on this. There's something there. I don't know what, but I I told you, and I was dead on about this. The one person I raised Kane about once Trump got elected was Mike Flynn. I mean, he had all the signs of being really bad news, and it was even worse than I expected. So the hypocrisy has been incredibly depressing. As far as trying to figure out what's going on with Trump, I'm I'm continually going back to the analogy, which to me is the best that I can come up with, best I've heard. And that is chess versus checkers. Trump has gotten 
an enormous amount of play out of people thinking all the way back through the campaign that he's playing chess. Because he's a billionaire and he's a celebrity, people think, well, he must really have all the angles figured out. And so when he does something, inevitably it is given far more credibility than it really deserves. So people are thinking, wow, that didn't seem smart, but there must be an angle to it that I'm missing because he's Donald Trump and he's a celebrity billionaire and he couldn't be this dumb and he's president of the United States and he beat Hillary and he's got to be a freaking genius, right? I have never believed that he was a chess player. I believe he's a checkers player that people gave credit for playing chess and who got incredibly lucky. And if you think about the checkers chess analogy, if at the beginning of a chess game, a player who is given credibility by the opponent, because the opponent doesn't yet realize that he's an idiot, and you know he's got a big reputation and he's famous, And if a chess player comes in and starts off making all sorts of crazy moves in an effort to take all of your pieces as quickly as he can, at the first stage of the game, he's going to be winning. You know, the Trump character will be winning. But that's short-lived. Because in chess, short-term victories that are not based on a strong foundation end up coming back to haunt you and you will pay for them usually big time in horrendous defeats, but it takes a little while. And that's what it feels like, especially in the foreign policy realm. That's what it feels like to me with Trump. We haven't been, there've been no major defeats so far. Nothing disastrous has happened so far, but these crazy moves have got to eventually come back to haunt because he's playing checkers everyone's giving him credit for playing chess and frankly this is a chess game so he's playing chess as if it's checkers trying to take all these pieces as quickly as possible but he's leaving himself wide open in the long run now, how that's going to manifest itself i don't know but i'm just looking at this in the, in the big picture in the big picture of things it certainly seems as if that's where we're headed but i'm still hopeful because like i said The 100 days could have been worse. It could have been worse if he had actually tried to do some of the crazy things he promised. And somehow Colt 45 doesn't seem to care. Doesn't seem to care that he's not going to keep any of his promises. And that wall, oh, yeah, forget about that. That's never going to happen either. All right, so uh, enough about Trump. Uh, I wrote a couple of columns for Mediate this week that I want to mention to you. And I want to refer to you to our website, freespeechbroadcasting.com. The first was one that I promised during last week's podcast, which was about how in light of the Bill O'Reilly era at Fox News Channel ending, that Fox News Channel, after 20 years, when you look at it in, their, in the, the totality of the network's influence, that it has actually been bad for conservatism. And I would have made that argument even before Donald Trump, but post-Donald Trump, I think that argument is a slam dunk. And I make that argument in an article I wrote this week for Mediate, which, again, you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com. I also wrote another column about Ann Coulter canceling her scheduled appearance for Berkeley here in California because of fear of riots breaking out, threats, what have you, uh, you know, because we, we can't have divergent opinions on a, on a college campus these days, folks. No, no, no. That, that's a crisis. 
these special snowflakes, they cannot be exposed to ideas different than what they have been brainwashed with their entire existence, especially here in California, till the age of 20 years old. Imagine that. 20, 21, 22-year-olds not being capable. By the way, no, no one's forcing them to go. That's the part of this that's so insane. It's not as if this is a commencement address speaker where you, you know, you're skipping out on your graduation. This is just a speech at a venue you can easily skip. No one's forcing you to go at all. It's not you're not even going to miss out on extra credit for a, for a class. And yet this thing turns into a whole big controversy. And unfortunately, because no one likes Ann Coulter, especially in the news media, no one's defending her. And so free speech ends up getting destroyed because this is, this is a serious free speech issue. And this is a state school where she has a contract or had a contract to speak on a particular day under particular circumstances. And she was forced out of that. And, you know, the forcing of her out of this by threats, you know, that's called the heckler's veto. Meaning that simply by threatening to demonstrate or protest, you're able to effectively censor somebody's somebody else's speech. In other words, you're going to veto their speech. Thus the name heckler's veto. The heckler's veto, back when I was in school, I went to Georgetown University, graduated in 1989. That was a serious concept. That was, that was a line that was not to be crossed. Because once you cross that line and allow the heckler's veto, it's all over. It's all over from that point because now you've set the precedent that all you got to do is if the speaker is unpopular and the media is not going to back them, just threaten protests and possible riots and the whole thing will effectively be shut down. That's where we are in free speech. And it's all largely because of the liberal monopoly on academia and the fact that the media is so unwilling to stand up for principles that appear to be supporting conservatives. If this was a liberal, of course, this would never happen to a liberal, but if it was, this this would be all we'd be talking about. Oh, my God! Oh, free speech! No, well, they don't care about that when it's an unpopular conservative. Speaking of such things and how unbelievably hypocritical the left is and how weak they are intellectually, how afraid they are of any divergent opinions, the reaction to the New York Times allowing a guy by the name of Brett Stevens. I don't know if you've heard about this. It got a lot of play on Twitter and some other places. This week, the New York Times allowed a guy by the name of Brett Stevens, who, frankly, I've never heard of before, but he's now writing a column for the New York Times. And his first column was about skepticism towards climate change or man-made climate change. Not man-made climate change is a myth or a fraud or a conspiracy or something like that. No, 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 no. I read the article, the column. It was actually, in my view, it was way too measured. I mean, it essentially acknowledges, which you always, it's like you, it's like, it's a lot like uh, me with the whole uh, Penn State case, the whole Sandusky thing. The first thing you have to do is acknowledge how bad Chalmol station is, as if, as if anyone thinks that Chalmol station is good. 
So it, when it comes to climate change, and the two stories are actually way more related than you ever would imagine. The two phenomenons are almost exactly the same. Because if you disagree, you're a bad person. If you disagree with the conventional wisdom, because the science has already been settled, the consensus is already set, you disagree, you're a bad person. And you're not to be heard from. Sit down, shut up. So the, the reality is he accepts the basic premises, which I don't, of the climate change movement. He just expresses some mild skepticism that, wait a minute, hold on. Isn't it a little scary? Isn't it a little dangerous for us to be so sure that we're right? Because after all, look what happened with Hillary Clinton. Everyone was sure she was going to win, and it turned out she lost. Well, the left went batshit crazy. Oh, my God. Oh! People were supposedly, I don't know how many actually did this, but supposedly people were were ending their subscriptions to the New York Times because, my word, the Times actually had the audacity to allow someone to express mild skepticism towards man-made climate change. You know what that tells me? That kind of reaction tells me you're not real very, you're not confident at all. In fact, you're incredibly insecure about your position. If you were secure about your position, if this was so obvious, if it's so obvious that you're right, then drill us in a debate. Crush us every single day. Instead, it's the reaction is always emotional. It's always emo- and it's also based in censorship. How dare you question the consensus of scientists. Scientists who are never right in any of their predictions. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what I, I keep telling the people who mock, and I get mocked all the time on Twitter and Facebook because I just, I do not believe that any of the hurdles of the man-made climate change, global warming alarmists have been satisfactorily overcome. I mean, there's like five or six that I set out all the time that I just don't think that they've proven. And I, and I say all the time, look, if you want me to believe you, I'm very willing and open-minded. Just make a prediction about the future one time that turns out to be right. Just one. I can't find one. Is there? Is it possible that there's one out there? I ask all the time, and no one ever sends me one. I Every prediction these whack jobs make is not just wrong, it's way wrong. Not to mention that, you know, Oxum's razor, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I, I mean, I, I, every summer, my family goes to Yosemite National Park. Yosemite National Park was created by glaciers. These glaciers didn't melt at the start of the Industrial Revolution. These glaciers melted 10,000 years ago. So before 10,000 years ago, where today you have Yosemite Valley, you had massive ice glaciers for tens and tens of thousands of years. How did that happen? It's called climate change. The climate changed. And man didn't have a damn thing to do with it. So again, just give me a prediction that's right. Just, just give me one. 
and your arrogance and insecurity to me, when you're that arrogant, you're that afraid of the other side, you're that insecure, you're that emotionally responsive, your your responses are emotionally based and not based in facts or logic, those are all signs to me you're full of shit, all right? And I think that's what we have with the man-made global warming people. But that reaction to that column was the perfect, perfect example of that. Uh, one or a couple of things I want to mention uh, before hour number one is over. This happens to be the 25th anniversary of the Los Angeles riots. I live uh, just north of Los Angeles, used to live in Los Angeles. Uh, oddly enough, I've now lived in, in Southern California longer than any other place I've ever lived in my life, which is really stunning. Never thought that would happen in a bazillion years. Uh, and because it's the 25th anniversary, there's been a lot of news media coverage of that. And a couple of national documentaries have been put out. And I was not living in Los Angeles at the time of the riots, but I've seen enough of these shows to have a pretty good sense as to what was really going on. Obviously, they were provoked by, mainly provoked by the Rodney King video. And the King video, it it is horrific. Uh, Video always is a little scary to me because... Inherently, as I've said before, you never know what happened before the person started recording. So to have the full context, that's like inherent. Why did that guy start recording? Something happened. But I'll be the first to acknowledge that 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 recording was terrible, and it's very understandable why it provoked outrage. What's not understandable, though, is that the outrage that it provoked resulted in the destruction of an entire section of a city, by the way, inhabited mostly, but not exclusively, by the, the by people of the same race as those who were claiming the outrage. I mean, how does that make any damn sense? We're upset over a black man being beaten, so we're going to burn down the black sections of Los Angeles. And we're going to get, and we're going to effectively get in a race war with Koreans. Because that's really what the riots were mostly about. People don't seem to know this. But most of this was a race war between Koreans and black people. But these documentaries are, it is so nauseating to watch them because the overall tenor and tone is to apologize for black reaction to this. I say it all the time. One of the greatest things George Bush ever said was, to use the phrase, the soft bigotry of low expectations. And that, to me, is dead on when it comes to the media's treatment of black people in general and specifically with regard to the L.A. riots. We think so little of you, I guess the media is saying. We think so little of you, black people, that the fact that you completely overreacted to this and burned down your own damn city and killed lots of innocent people and caused a billion dollars in damage. We're going to, we're not going to really condemn you for that. Oh, it's all understandable because after all, a scumbag like Rodney King got beaten way worse than he deserved by police. And the ultimate example of what I'm talking about here with this, the, the way the, the media and these documentaries view this case. You remember the Reginald Denny beating? He was the white guy who had the brick thrown at him by a black guy who then danced 
This was on live television. When you compare what happened to Rodney King by police officers when King provoked the episode, all right? I'm not saying he deserved what he got, but he provoked it. Without question, he provoked He admitted this. He provoked it. And these were police. When you compare that to what happened to Reginald Denny, where in broad daylight, guys who are not police, a guy who was not provoking anything, a guy who was targeted purely because of his race, unlike Rodney King, had way more damage done to him. And those LA4, as they're referred to, are seen in these, these documentaries as freaking heroes. They're still heroes in parts of LA today. And their punishment, their punishment was, you could argue either way, it was certainly in the same ballpark as the punishment that the police officers in the King beating ended up getting, which is... It's just flat out ridiculous. It's insane. The two situations, one was way worse, way worse than the other. Nobody's making documentaries turning the L.A. police officers into heroes. I can assure you that. And it's also important to point out Those guys, the police officers, went through two trials. They had a second trial simply because we didn't like the first trial. And ordinarily, you only get one trial, but they decided, no, no, it's a civil rights violation, so we can try them again. Two of those guys got acquitted the second time. So two juries acquitted two of those police officers twice. I'm not saying that makes it right, but there's got to be something to it has to be some reason why that happened. Anyway, it's, and if, you know, the other thing, I'll leave it with this. The other part of these uh, LA riot documentaries that I think is really important. I keep, I kept thinking the whole time during, and I've watched like three of them. The whole time I'm thinking, boy, everything would have been so much different in Los Angeles leading up and including those riots. If only, if only Los Angeles had had a black mayor at the time. Now, for those of you who don't know the history of Los Angeles, I'm being incredibly sarcastic because for the previous 20 years, 20 years leading up to the Rodney King riots, the mayor of Los Angeles was Tom Bradley, a black guy. Yet according to these documentaries, he's non-existent. Isn't that, isn't that, he, it's, it's, he's, his face is hardly even seen. Is it, no, no, this is all the police chief. The police chief was basically running Los Angeles because he's a white male, running Los Angeles like a dictator. It's, it's absurd. There was a black freaking mayor for 20 years. If only, if only there had been a black mayor, maybe something would have been different. All right. Um, another story that got a lot of uh, play uh, this week was the cutbacks at ESPN. And uh, there's a lot I could say about this, but I just want to mention it briefly, partially because it's going to segue to me giving you an update on the the Penn State situation, which is going to blow your mind. Uh, Because ESPN had a huge role in in that whole narrative getting completely butchered. But uh, ESPN fired about 100 people this week. Now, a lot of people on the right have tried to claim that this is because they're now losing money because they're too far to the left, they're very liberal, they've lost their audience, and it would be wonderful if that was the case. Now, is it possible they've lost some audience because, in fact, they are way to the left? I mean, they might as well be MSNBC. 
ESPN. And I've been saying this for years, and I've been saying for years, I've been saying two things that are now suddenly getting traction. Somebody needs to put together a competition for, for Fox News Channel on the right, and somebody needs to create a sports channel to the right of ESPN because there's a market for both of them. Well, the reality is now that because of the changes in the business model, which has been broken now, in cable television, both of those ideas are long shots because it's very difficult in this environment to create a new startup. And part of the biggest part of what happened with ESPN had very little to do with losing audience because of their liberal leanings. It had much more to do with the fact that that business model I referred to, which was a boondoggle. I mean, ESPN had the greatest boondoggle of all freaking time. They were getting non-sports fans to pay ridiculous prices per month to get their channel with really no other option. They, that was going on for years when cable ruled. Well, now that there's other options, that you know vice grip that they had has been eliminated. And so now... It's not like ESPN's losing money. They're still making ridiculous amounts of money. They're just not making as much. And this was all effectively a show for the Disney shareholders. They needed to show the Disney shareholders, see, we get it. We're cutting back. We're going to cut 100 people. Well, to me, the most significant part about the, the ESPN cutbacks is how they cut back. They cut some really solid people. Effectively, essentially, what they did was they got rid of some of their better journalists, their better reporters, because there's no money in good reporting anymore. It's all about creating Shazam. It's all about popularity. It's all about ratings. It's all about being a celebrity. So they basically got rid of the non-celebrity nuts and bolts types of people because that doesn't make them money. That's why, forget about sports, that's why journalism in general is dead. Because now with Twitter and Facebook and overnight ratings and being able to determine immediately you know, whether a story is popular or not, popularity runs everything. News and journalism isn't based in popularity. It's based in truth. Oftentimes, truth is not very popular. But now, that's all anybody wants to keep their gig. And this is going to have enormous implications, not just in, in sports and ESPN, but throughout the media business. Because you thought journalism was dead before. Nobody, after what they saw happen at ESPN this week, is going to make their niche. I'm the journalism guy. I'm the I'm the fact guy. I'm I'm going to do really solid reporting, and I'm not going to make me the story. Ha! Good luck. <laughs> You're going to be out of a job sooner or later, because those aren't the things that sell anymore. Because this is just a business. It's all about profit. That's what it's about. And getting back to. The Penn State thing, that's what it was about for ESPN. They got a great story, a great narrative back in November of 2011 that during a very slow period of sports news, the beginning of November, 
NBA was on strike. Baseball had just ended. Basketball hadn't started up yet. Football was in a lull. And that whole Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky thing happened. And wowzers, they went bananas with it. And almost everything they reported was false. And it facilitated the greatest injustice that did not result in a direct killing that I've ever seen. I've investigated the case more thoroughly than anybody on the planet over the last five years. And today, at my website, framingpaterno.com, I'm out with a a new post which really pretty much encapsulates the insanity of the entire story. Without getting all the details, you can find it at framingpaterno.com. You can find those details. But here's the basics. So the key to this whole story, for those of you who've forgotten, is a guy by the name of Mike McQuarrie the former assistant football coach at Penn State who allegedly witnessed Jerry Sandusky sexually assaulting a boy in a shower, told Joe Paterno, told the rest of the Penn State administration, and you know, effectively they didn't do very much. That's the media's narrative. That's a narrative that makes no damn sense because it didn't happen. Well, from very early on in covering the story, I had been told by the highest levels that one of the reasons why McQuarrie might have been vulnerable to manipulation by investigators who came to him 10 years, 10 years, when he gets the date, the month, and the year wrong, by the way, after this episode, that he might have been vulnerable to being manipulated by uh, by, uh, investigators who were desperate to try to finally get some decent evidence against Sandusky because they couldn't find any, is that he had a penchant for sending pictures of his penis to women who were not his wife including through a Penn State phone. Now, I've never been able to prove this, even though I believed it, and I believed it to be an important part of the entire scenario here. Well, today, I pretty much proved it. (laughs) Not that anyone's going to really care, except for people who are really into this case, but you're going to find this humorous, I believe, because it's just so insane. So here's what happened. And I've been close to getting these Penis pictures before, but everyone in this case is a freaking coward. So, you know, even if you get close, you're never really that close because in the end, everyone's always going to wimp out. But a couple weeks ago, I got approached by a woman who said, hey, I've been uh, involved in some really rather sexual interplay with Mike McQuarrie, even though we've never met, never spoken on the phone. Uh, And I'm wondering, you know, is there anything I can do to be helpful here? Because she's a person who for very good reason, has been a supporter of mine. Her name is Jess Stewart. And the reason why she is quite certain that I'm right, that the whole case is a fraud, is that, get this, she was the fiancé for Jerry Sandusky's attorney during the trial. So Joe jo Amendola was his name. So the former fiancé of Jerry Sandusky's attorney is involved in a sexting session with Mike McQuarrie without ever having spoken to him, without ever having met him. And so I explained to her, all right, well, you know, there's this penis picture issue. Uh, Can you maybe see if you can get one from him? And she says, okay, sure. Well, it was easy peasy. No problem. Uh, He sent her that and a whole lot more. And uh, today I created a post based on all of this. Now, she had agreed to do an interview on this podcast about her experience with Mike McQuarrie, who she was completely weirded out by, as you might imagine. But of course, as is always the case in this story, uh, she wimped out at the last minute after agreeing to do this. Uh, And this happens for fascinating human reasons, I've now learned, because this has occurred to 
I've had this happen at least a dozen times in various ways in the five years of covering this story. What's interesting from a human perspective is people think that when they come to me with information that they have actually done something good. And so therefore their conscience is relieved of any burden. But then when it comes time to the part where they actually have to put their name out there, they get cold feet and usually a spouse convinces them not to do it. And they don't realize that they haven't done anything good yet. In fact, all they've really done is wasted my time. But that's a that's an interesting subplot to this whole deal. And if you're interested at all, and you should be because it's an amazing story, uh, you can get all the details and there's a lot more to it at uh, framingpaterno.com. That's framingpaterno.com. It's all the framing is supposed to be figurative, not literal. It's not a conspiracy theory. In fact, I'm the only non-conspiracy person in the entire damn case. So if you care about the truth, go check it out there. And by the way, the fact that you can only get the truth at a little website called framingpaterno.com is proof of just how much journalism is dead in this country. All right, stay tuned for hour number two, because in hour number two, speaking of uh, journalism, we've got Glenn Beck's co-host of his radio show, Stu Bergweer, is going to be joining us for hour number two, a guy who also hosts his own show on The Blaze. So looking forward to that. And as always, I only ask two things of you. Number one, share this podcast via social media, word of mouth. Or And two, do yourself a favor. And if you're one of those people who sleeps and at night you use sheets, stay tuned to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah, they're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh, no wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.